Hello and welcome to Crystal Podcast on iCode Media. Today, I'm excited to have a conversation with Drs. Harvey Hanlon, Dr. John Nolan, and Dr. Jim Stringham. We're going to talk about some new technology related to carotenoids and macular degeneration, and that's the life meter. And so I want to kind of open it up to the problem of measuring carotenoids. And it's been a historical problem. Uh, Harvey, tell me about this problem historically. Well, the issue is that if we're trying to measure macular carotenoids, it's been almost impossible to accurately do it in our offices as a practitioner. Uh, they do it in the labs, and the scientists do it, and it's very sophisticated and takes a while, but when you're in the ER office, you need to make sure that you can do a, tech, a test that's quick, accurate, and you can explain easily to patients. And so, um, so the downside with that is that obviously historically what we've had is we've had a couple different devices or widgets that, that occur. One is, I've seen one, well, one that's been around for a long time, uh, measures macular pigments. And the challenge with that is it uses technology that relies on a patient's response. Jim, do you want to talk about that at all? Yeah, that's right, Chris. Uh, historically, we've you know seen uh, clinical implementation attempts uh, with flicker photometry, and and so this is a subjective test, of course, and and uh, and I've used this in my lab over the years, over the past twenty five years, and it can be a good measure of macular pigment, but you know there's a lot of you know subjectivity, there's variability that can be difficult for patients to do, it can be time consuming, and so obviously if you're you know looking to baseline and track a patient. You want something that's, you know, not only accurate, but it's going to be less variable than something that's all over the place so you can have confidence in the measure. And so despite many, many attempts at this, you know, heterochromatic flicker photometry method, uh, largely what we've seen is, you know, they become paperweights in, in the clinic, in the office. So, yeah. Harvey, did you have one of these before? Did you ever have an office measuring like macular pigment device? We did not because yeah. the one that was available at the time from another company, I didn't think was accurate enough to run in the office. I mean, we felt the same way. We didn't ever have one either. I knew, I know a lot of people who, well, I knew some people who had them and what Jim's describing is the exact challenge with them is, yeah. is the reliability and repeatability. And John, you and I have had this conversation before as well. Uh, related to the devices that you use. Jim, you, you've used that device, that MPOD device in your studies. But, but John, you, you have used that, but you've also used one that's sort of like a lab device. Yeah, yeah. Why, what makes that different? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, because that device was from Professor Billy Wooden. Um, his invention, essentially, the, the densitometer, the, the original densitometer. And um, you know, when we started this kind of research, was over tw nearly 25 years ago. You know, it, we didn't have access to the type of technologies that are in eye care today. So we'll come back to that in a moment. But in, in the research world, we didn't need either. So, you know, we in my I actually had a device before Professor Wootton's um, from University of Westminster in London, uh, Professor John Malerio. And it was a flicker device too, but it was highly limited in terms of what it could do because to your question, in order to do an accurate measurement that's reliable, that if you retest, you get the same, you have to optimize and customize, if you like, the system for that participant, for that patient, mm. okay? And that takes a piece of work, a significant piece of work, which takes time, which is something that you don't have in the clinic. So even in a perfect case scenario, we have another problem, and that is if you were to do 
a measure 100% accurate you're only getting a measure on that line of macular pigment so if you think of the macular pigment like a mountain classically you have a one degree stimulus so you're measuring at the edge of that 0.5 degrees of retinal eccentricity and you know there was maybe 15 years of science that came out with that research measure what happened in real time and i saw it happen was companies tried to you know take advantage of that science and commercialize devices but with the cost that they couldn't provide you know this big big system that you you're referring to that we have which was set up to a customize the system so just for cffs uh, lens age all of these factors that are really really important um so it got everything for me very quickly got lost in translation to the clinic you know um and there's only one worse measure than not having a measure and that's a measure that's not accurate yeah well i would mm -hmm. i would say it's probably worse right like having yeah. an inaccurate unreliable measurement as yeah. you talked about it winds up in the closet and it, it and then it's not repeatable it's and it's actually detracting because if i can't know that this reading is valid then well I, do i make a strong recommendation do i make a weak recommendation is the eating green leafy vegetables is that acceptable so i mean it, it winds up a whole it opens up a whole can of worms yeah. clinically but even if it's not valid from a from a normative perspective right at the very least you want it to be unique to the patient so in other words if you change their lifestyle or give them a supplement that if there is a positive change in those scores that the system is capable of detected and and the variation with in test retest on these devices is greater than you know change that you would expect to see with appropriate supplementation so for me it was for many years i've been saying this unapologetically on the stage for a long time that you know i i, I think the optometrist needs to be protected from devices that are over commercialized mm. that that are not valid in terms of delivering what they claim upon it does a disservice to your industry mm -hmm. yeah i think i think what uh, i always think about when we're thinking about disease state management and this this is pretty much a comment for you harvey is where we get bogged down is if we don't have good repeatable measures of how what what a patient is dealing with that are uh, is ob as, as objective as possible before we start a patient on treatment and then after we start a patient on treatment we're sort of wondering how effective that treatment was we see i see this still continuously in in doctors who are trying to integrate uh, ocular surface disease management into their practice and the common mistake they make is they rely too heavily on patient symptoms to drive what the next step is. They know what they're looking for. They're looking for staining, they're looking for other things, but they're not being super accurate in the documentation of those things. They might say corneal staining, as opposed to like one plus inferior SPK, uh, or one plus temporal lysamine green staining, or you know an osmolarity measurement of 345, or we, and then we put a, put a patient on treatment, and they come back and they still might have some corneal staining, but, our measure of success is, do you feel better? And if the patient doesn't feel better, but we don't have any other reliable, repeatable clinical indicators to know if we actually made that patient better, then we wind up going down this rabbit hole of like, well, I can't tell if I put this patient on X medication or Y medication, why they're doing better, because sometimes they do better and sometimes they don't. And then you just, you have any guidance. And, and I think in a lot of ways, that's where we've been within carotenoids in, in yeah. the macula. So then kind of fast forward, Harvey, into 
the skin carotenoid measures. So we've had something that measures carotenoid in the skin. It's been around for probably four or five years. I don't know. I haven't evaluated it too much because of because it is really linked to the sale of a specific carotenoid. So, you know, that that limits a lot of what you would want to do, especially if there's better carotenoids available. So I, that's why I haven't really evaluated it. But to me, it seems like if we now have the ability to say, OK, this is what you are on this uh, or taking nothing. And we can repeat that in a month, two months, three months. There's a lot of strong critical clinical value to that. I, I totally agree. And, and in fact, the, the new instrument, the, the life meter, is very, very accurate. And, and not only is it accurate, Chris, for the doctor to know how the patient's doing, but for the patient to know how the patient's doing. You know, we have yeah. all of our patients that they, they're, they live on numbers. They're diabetics. They want their A1C. They're glaucoma patients. They want their IOP number. Well, when you put a patient on a supplement, they often ask, Doc, is this working? Well, we haven't been able to really tell unless they've given us some response like, I'm seeing better at night or my general vision seems better, things like that. I think when you tell a patient that their number went from 200 to 300 and you know what the standard is, and we can talk about that shortly, is they feel better and they'll stay on the supplement. If you sort of don't know what to tell them and you're wishy-washy in, your, in, your, in the few minutes that you have with that patient, what are they going to do? Yeah, They'll finish the bottle and they may buy another one that they may not. They need to see an objective finding that can help them. Well, especially when we're dealing with a condition like macular degeneration specifically is that it is going to get worse. I mean, there's nothing we do that's going to make it better at this point where all, our, all we can tell the patient is it's not getting worse. Right. And and that's a challenge, right? As opposed to being able to say, yes, you know, we're, we're seeing clinical findings on your macula that haven't changed, but also your numbers have gone from here to there or even better. Mrs. Smith, just like we do with intraocular pressure, Mrs. Smith, it's looking like your pressures are a little high today. Have you been mm. adherent to taking your medications? Are you missing drops here or there? I mean, we can have the same conversation now if we have something like the life meter that allows us to understand those numbers. And really, frankly, it really allows you to do the Pepsi Coke challenge in some ways. You know, patients come in and they, I got this, I got this at Costco, and I can get this big jar of carotenoids that say compare to Preservision A Reds two or I mean, I don't think they're comparing themselves to Macu Health yet. But but the point is, is that they're in the in the consumer's mind, this is the same thing. Well, honestly, like I have this, my my point to the patient would be, all right, if you're taking that and your levels are five hundred, God bless you. Keep yeah. taking it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, why yeah. am I going to argue with that? Right. But if you're taking it and your levels are 200, then, okay, well, now we have a better conversation. Well, this is, we're going to put you on this other one. We're going to start this other treatment. We'll see you back in a month, two months, whatever. And now we can see, all right, we're going to remeasure this. We're going to recheck that. That, I think, becomes way more empowering as a clinician. I, I agree with you. Uh, one thing I want us to be careful about, Chris, I don't want us to get stuck in the cubbyhole of macular degeneration. Agreed. Because it's much broader than that. Visual performance in a younger person who may not be seeing as well quanti qualitatively as they are, they may see 20-20, but their quality of vision is not that good. And a lot of times it's because they have low carotenoid levels mm. and their visual performance is bad. So this, I think, gives us a, an approach. We don't have to talk about a disease process. We can start talking about visual performance now. Uh, irrespective of age. 
Yeah. Well, and Jim, you really, uh, you really got my dad with, with that sort of idea. You know, my dad's 60, so he's, so I'll be 42. He's 60, he'll be 65 this summer. And, um, and when he came, when you had a heated conversation with you about a month ago now, uh, and you know, he was like, I'm convinced my number, I think, so when I checked my number at Seco, I was like 410 Mm -hmm. and he checked his number. I think it was like 250. And yeah. so he, so he's been supplementing since then. He's got no macular degeneration, is is what you're talking about. Right. Uh, he does have a family history, but he's, you know, he keeps in good shape. He eats well, and so he's excited to retest. What's he going <laughs> to see after a month of of being on a uh, on Macu Health specifically? Well, I the LMZ three. Well, right, right. What we've seen is, you know, you can move the needle, and and the lower you start. You, you, you have a little bit higher ceiling so let, to so go. I actually probably jumped the gun a little, Jim. So let, I'm going to take a step back and say, okay, well, what's our normal ranges? What are the normal numbers? Um, and let, let you start there, and then we'll go into uh, what is he going to see. Sure, sure. So from the literature, and there are over 30 publications on this device, and then in my personal experience as well, uh, just measuring, well, hundreds of people at this point, the average is somewhere between you know 250 to 280 somewhere in there and that's you know generally the US population and that's, density, right? that's that's an optical density measure uh, it's a concentration of these carotenoids just like we measure with yeah. optical density in the eye mm-hmm. and and so you know they're concentrating at virtually the same type of levels there's a strong correlation between skin and eye serum as well and and so what we've seen and and we've got a couple of cases one of them is my daughter, uh, another is uh, one of our managers at work, Emily. And uh, so they both start in the mid 200s, kind of like your dad. Mm-hmm. And, and so they, they start supplementing. And within about 30 days, we're seeing roughly a 100 point change. Mm-hmm. Now, you extend that out. And again, it's an accumulation process. And so, you know, 60, 90 days. Um, I think that judging from, uh, and again, this is a couple of individuals. In a couple of months, you can move it a couple hundred points. Mm. I mean, and this is assuming you're a non-smoker, you know, generally healthy, no, you know, systemic disease like diabetes. Inflammation can use these nutrients up too. Mm. And so, uh, and I think, you know, going back slightly to your previous uh, question, uh, the, the topic, this idea of a good diet is is an interesting one. And, you know, when we talk nutrition, you know, for uh, over 100 years now, doctors are like, you know, diet and exercise, right? right. Do it. <laughs> so people say, Oh, I've got a good diet. Yeah. And I'm sure you've heard this as clinicians, you know, you, I've got a, my diet's fine, you know. And so that definition is not standardized at all. Yeah. And it can be really wildly variable. Yeah, I you only know. eat McDonald's once a week. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Or, or they say, well, I eat, you know, a couple salads a month and I have a piece of fish yeah. on, you know, the last day of the month, whatever it is. And uh, it's like, well, you know, you got to do it consistently. And, and uh, this is where, you know, you get those benefits. And, uh, and so it's, it's been frustrating. I know for John and I, we see these things in the lab measuring very carefully and we see these really strong effects, um, you know, visual performance effects, holding off disease progression. These things are very real, but you've got to be consistent yeah, with and compliance is huge. Mm. This is a, is a truth teller. Mm. It will tell you, the clinician, if your patients are compliant. It'll tell you if they are compliant and it's not moving, something else is going on. I mean, there's 
you know, something happening. Uh, for the patient, you know, it's it's very reinforcing. You know, you see the number, like you mentioned, patients go for, you know, all the numbers they want to, you know, and, and I measure athletes and they're very competitive. They want to mm -hmm. go up too, you right. know. And so uh, like with your dad, you know, there are things he mentioned to me, you know, he struggles a little bit with glare at night, you know, mm -hmm. oncoming headlights, that kind of stuff, vision and low light. And so those things start to turn the corner after a few months, you yeah. know, consistent, you know, adherence to either supplement or a very good diet. But yeah, in this case, I'm very excited to see where he's at. What I think about this, some of those symptoms and Harvey, you and I have talked about this before as well, is just that, you know, the glare, when I think, I mean, I, I don't know if it's just bias, but I always think, um, oh, glare and I 65 years old, you got cataracts, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, um, and so this, these kinds of ideas where we know we can start to improve some of the contact contrast sensitivity and even improve some of our nighttime vision symptoms and glare may be one of them, sure. uh, by having better carotenoids just sort of is mind blowing and almost game changing where you're, you're now considering macular function in, in conditions that are historically thought about as lenticular. Yeah. Well, I'll make a comment to you, Chris. So, so my night vision has gotten significantly better. I'm 74 years old, have had bilateral cataract surgery, so mm. there are no cataracts. I've had um, uh, the capsules open, so that's done. Had the capsulotomies, as happens a lot of times. The quality of my vision at night is far better. I never wanted to drive at night it doesn't bother me anymore. And it's really amazing for me to see that um, since it, for so many years, I was a high myope. And so, you know, we tend not to, not to like nighttime vision better. So it's been real. It's very real. Yeah. Well, and so the, the, if we're going to kind of bridge the gap of, of kind of how do we get from, how do I know that the life meter, which measure, measures, and measures pigment, optical density in my fingers, how do I know that that's going to correlate to my macula? So we've got to get it by, obviously, if we can increase the numbers, and I'm sure that we've got some studies that you can talk about related to um, consuming, um, consuming carotenoids, yeah. leading to an increase in serum levels of yeah. carotenoids. That's what we're measuring through the life mm -hmm. meter. And knowing that if that level is higher, then the macular pigment is going to be more dense as well. How do we get to that point? Because yeah. that's that's kind of sort of the 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 only case that could be made from using a macular optical pigment density yeah. uh, measure that we could say, well, this is in your blood, but it's not in your macula. So tell me, how do we get there? Uh, a couple of points um, and a couple of ways to answer that question. In in the first instance, let's be very clear. Um, I agree with Jim that you'll see the changes in the skin maybe three four weeks into consistent supplementation. That doesn't mean that the macular carotenoids in the eye have changed at that point in time. We know from our studies that are in a valid measure when we use like proper objective assessment of macular pigment, you're looking at really six months mm. to turn the needle in the eye. Um, but how do we how do we know that there's a correlation and there's different ways to look at it before any interventions? Let, let's talk about what our data shows us. Number one, uh, HPLC of blood or skin, but we're not going to we're not going to size skin from living people to do that analysis but we can take blood draw blood that's very specific very exact very time consuming very expensive again not clinic friendly so this is a one way we know to measure with exactness the carotenoids that we're interested in we know from all my studies all gym studies and from many other people across the world that blood carotenoid concentrations are 
a really good correlate of uh, retinal macular pigments. So that that, that stands up cross-sectionally. Um, the, the good news is um, I have been using skin carotenoid measurement as part of my experiments, interventional experiments now for over for many, many years. And I can confirm and we have studies that when you supplement with macular specifically, um, you will change the blood levels and you will change the skin carotenoid levels and they correlate highly well together. So the change that we see does really, really good together. And that also correlates with the macular pigment levels. So the, the value of this is not just that we've been able to correlate this new technology with um, blood levels. We have absolutely, absolutely been able to demonstrate that supplementation will change macular pigment level and that correlates with the functions that we've been talking about. So we've done the work. Yeah. Well, I think I think the, the only other question I would have yeah. would be from a clinical standpoint or even just a scientific standpoint is when they don't correlate, uh, how often does that occur? And what are your thoughts? On, well, if they don't correlate, how often does that occur? And if it occurs, why? Like, what's the mechanism uh, underlying? So is there a one in a hundred chance that you're not going to elevate it if you're well, well, if we don't elevate the blood? Right. We have a non-responder. You're not going to elevate the skin. You're not going to elevate the... I've never seen a situation that we've had a responder in, in, in blood and not in skin. So how do... So then that's interesting. Then, then we could, you know, have the conversation of, well, you know, Steve, my dad. Yeah. You've been taking your supplement once a day, just like we've, we've discussed, and your levels are 250. And he's adamant that he does it. So what's the next step? How do you know he's a non-responder? Is he does he have other enzymes that are not uh, that are that are not absorbing this the right way? Do we increase his dose? What 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 do you know? Like what, what can we gain? From There'd that? be a couple of factors to, to look at. Maybe Jim would like to add to it, but one would be um, we always have to be cognizant of uh, lipoprotein profiles, the the role they play. You know the the journey of the carotenoid to be absorbed mm -hmm. is is quite complicated. We're talking about fat soluble nutrients that go into a water-based system that have to be encapsulated into a micromycelle that have to be transferred to the intestine wall limb system and then into the blood system so there's, there's a bit of work to do mm -hmm. and that's that's why we we celebrate the the new technologies of micromycelle because it has allowed us in a research world inform the clinic world on how to get a better result for all of your patients mm -hmm. so that's that that's that's important um I'm not sure if you want to add to that. Yeah, too. that's right. Well, I, I think primarily it's it's a, an absorption yeah. thing, I would guess. That would be my first guess. The second is that, you know, I think that we tend to look at carotenoids and the end organs where they get deposited, the retina, the skin, uh, lycopene gets deposited in the prostate if you're a male, uh, you know, those kinds of things. And but they, these nutrients, the body is super efficient and it's identified these nutrients that it's expecting to get in a lot. Now, granted, a lot of people don't eat them, but they're used systemically as well. And so it turns the blood into this antioxidant machine and it breaks the chain of inflammation. And so my next guess outside of absorption issues would be systemic inflammation. Yeah. Uh, you know, and if there's a lot, there's something going on. I mean, diabetes is a great example. You know, it's a, it's a systemic inflammatory disease. And so you've got adipocytes, the fatty, you know, that release inflammation into the blood. I mean, and that, that can reduce these carotenoids. So the body's getting, they're getting used up. And, before and they one go. other really important point, Chris, that you, you've alerted my brain to, and that is, and it's back to absorption. That's competition. Mm. So, the, and that's why 
I get sometimes like we can be casual about, okay, if lutein's working, it's working. But back to the whole understanding of what's actually in the supplement piece. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for example, if you had beta carotene in a supplement that, that you knew you were taking or that you didn't even more, she didn't know you were taking, that will have an effect on your dad's ability to absorb the lutein. Mm. So he's taking a supplement to get the benefit of the lutein because these, these are the specific carotenoids, you know, lutein, zeaxanthin and meso, as we know. So that's what you need. You can have competition between these carotenoids. Well, so that, that's important. That brings up an interesting point then because the, the, um, the other side of the coin that you would hear often is why we don't need to have mesozeaxanthine supplemented because it's going to compete with and we can convert lutein into mesozeaxanthine. So why is that not part of the competition? Have you another AR for this, chat? <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm I mean, joking. I'm we joking. got a little time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm willing to give you some time for it. Yeah, okay. You want to go, so, so you go ahead. Yeah, you, I mean. you brought up the interesting part about competition. And I know, uh, you know, I've, I've looked at the literature in depth of of that competition. So I think let's explore that a little mm. bit because mm. it is interesting. Well, Arad showed us very clearly that uh, high beta carotene consumption suppresses lutein. So Karat and I always explain where that the blood system is like a taxi system. And if we over supplement with any one carotenoid, you will suppress another carotenoid. And that's why getting the balance right in the formulation, you know, we, with, with our interventions in Waterford, we didn't just pick MACU Health. We looked at all different variations of, of, of the carotenoids that we could work with. It happened to be that the MACU Health 1010 was the one gave us the best results. So we chose that for the experiments. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, so that's important. Um, to the meso point, um, okay, so what we know is that we have about 15% of the population that have what we've coined and, and it's been validated by my center, but the other centers now from across the world, we instead of having your mountain profile, you have this kind of volcano, this dip centrally. And we know from the anatomy studies that when you when you analyze a retina macula, you'll see that the zeaxanthins. And um, Paul Bernstein has recently done beautiful work on this, um, even imaging showing zeaxanthin and mesozeaxanthin being the very central carotenoids. So uh, many years ago, I hypothesized um, that the dips that we were seeing, which I confirmed were real, which we knew were highly prevalent in those at high risk of macular degeneration were because of a deficiency of mesozeaxanthin mm. and an inability of that patient, maybe light, maybe enzymatic, to do that lutein conversion. Mm. So that's why, you know, lutein on its own is, is not enough, you know. Um, so you basically, so, so MacuHealth, the 1010 formulation has basically solved for that 15% of patients who are going to have dips because they can't convert yeah. lutein into mesozeaxanthin. Well, we came from a world where in my interventional studies, we had about 15, 20% non-responders yeah. to yeah. a world where we have a 100% response. Yeah, it was frustrating because we'd do supplements back in the you know late 90s and early 2000s. The only available supplements were just lutein alone or lutein and zeaxanthin. And you'd get and, and these are in normal individuals. These aren't folks at risk necessarily. They're college-age students, 15 to 20% non-responders in the center. And they're like, what is going on? They're going up in the blood, not in the eye. So it wasn't an absorption issue. And then there are recent reports that indicate that around 40 to 50% of those with AMD have this deficient conversion enzyme. Uh, it's And it's a continuum. Sometimes the enzyme doesn't necessarily work at all. Sometimes it's you know, slightly deficient. And so it's, uh, it's interesting that the, the genetics for all of this seem to fit. And, uh, and so, you know, of course, that's right where you need the densest pigment is right in the center, you know, over that foveola and uh, where the highest, you know, 
cone photoreceptor density is and you know potential for oxidative stress etc light focus i think we need to be clear as well with the skin measurement mm. we're measuring a composite of carotenoids we're not measuring any particular carotenoid so there's other carotenoids there's other carotenoids in the skin mm. that are not found in in the macula so uh, lycopene um, and that doesn't for example, confound the because well, you, well the surprise because to me the, yeah I, the surprise to me was i never i wondered and i actually didn't believe that taking lutein zeaxanthin and, and meso would change the needle in skin the mm. way we've seen it because i thought you'd be looking at more of a, a lycopene or a beta carotene supplement to do that but but actually now looking at the hplc data on skin carotenoids and it matches perfect mm. that of blood so lutein is a very big as uh, zeaxanthin very big um the present in in in, in skin um, and i know from our animal works as well when we when we do this we were able to look at all parts of of the when we did worked with the hen model and we did interventions that was where we actually started our work in terms of bioavailability in and and the, the micromycelle diacetate um you can see that these carotenoids have to kind of fill up the reservoirs within ourselves they're fat soluble right so some of us have nearly 50% fat in our bodies. <laughs> no, we don't want it to be in that place, but you know, maybe 25% anyway. So there's a lot, there's a lot to kind of satisfy before we can target mm. it to the tissues, the retina and the brain. So, yeah. So I like the, the idea of the six month. And so I think that kind of will allow us to wrap our, wrap up the conversation, maybe with a clinical discussion, Harvey, of if we're going to integrate this into a practice, um, a practice like mine, which I don't have this yet, um, would be, uh, okay, well, Harvey, you're saying, look, we're thinking about visual function beyond macular degeneration now. So if if I'm convinced that that's what I want to do, then how do you, how do I set this up in my practice so that it's minimally uh, impactful on the patient flow and maximally impactful in the conversations I get to have with patients? So I think there's a couple of ways you can do that, Chris. Some practices are when I've talked to doctors actually want to have it done at the front desk. Mm -hmm. And we have offices doing that on every patient. Um, there are some practices that want to have it done by their technician as part of their pretest. It's a very quick test. Jim, what's it take? Three minutes? Yeah, under three minutes, probably okay. two. So, and, and some doctors say three minutes, you know, I have to, I got to mm -hmm. save three minutes. Well, you know my philosophy about how yeah. long we spend with patients. Yeah. It's a lot longer than that. So um, I, I personally believe that when you're doing a medical test, you want to show value and you do it as part of the medical testing. I think I'm not the one that loves the idea of the front desk, but it seems to be an idea that doctors believe will work well for them. Hmm. So I think there's different ways to incorporate it. I think what has to happen is that that number needs to follow the patient. So either the technician or the doctor, or perhaps if you have a trained person at the front that can that understands it on the patient's way out, that they can be going through that with the patient about their number. So I think that's how you do that. I want to make one observation to you, Chris, because I was listening to the conversation about what happens if that number doesn't go up. Yeah. And what, what enters my mind if I'm the practitioner and I have a younger person in the 20s or 30s where their number doesn't increase, the first question I guess I would ask at that point is, when's the last time you had a physical exam? Mm. Is there something, something systemically going on in an inflammatory way that may be taking these carotenoids and using them? Because you know, we know that the average younger person doesn't have regular physical examinations. 
And there may be things going on now that are going to rear their ugly head coming in the future. So I look at this in a couple of different ways of how we as a clinician can look at the not only a number for the for the patient, whether it's done at the front desk or whether it's done in a, in a, in a tech setting, uh, but what what do we see when the follow up number occurs? Yeah, and it's that's not, the challenge. And it's yeah. not what we think it should yeah. be. Yeah. Are we going to be the full scope practitioner and discuss that with them? Or are we just going to focus on those two eyes six inches apart and that's it? Yeah. I think we need to be the full scope practitioner. Yeah, I would agree. I, I think that's the, the challenge from a lot of people that would would be that. Okay, well, what happens is the same thing when we think about dry eye. I prescribe this treatment and the patient doesn't feel better. Or my number, even if I'm measuring all numbers, well, what what's next? Well. If you've got, you know, then it's like, well, now we got to figure out what's next. And if you're ready, if you're willing to figure out what's next and have the conversation with, well, let's see if there's something else systemically going on, or, you know, maybe we are uh, absorbing too much in our adipose tissue, then it's a, you have to be willing to have the conversation, but also not letting the potential, the small potential for the having to have that conversation break down the good that you could do. Uh, last question. How many patients do I need to treat with uh, this in order to harm somebody? What's the harm that's going to come from, you know, patients asymptomatic, young, um, we measure them and their numbers are low. And so we, we talk to them, they understand the importance, they do it. How am I going to harm that patient? Is there any downside? I mean, I think a lot of times we wonder about the downside or we don't wonder about the downside effects of a nutraceutical. But are there any uh, for that long duration 30-year-old patient? We think of only benefit, only vis visual benefit. But are they going to, you know, is there a potential, obviously the cost, they have, you know, there, there's a cost involved. But is there an anxiety now that all of a sudden they're worried about other things? Is there, you know, other... And I haven't seen it. I'm just trying to think, well, what's the downside of treating somebody for for years and years and years in supplementation? You might know this better. Yeah. I mean, I was going to go cost. Yeah. I mean, that's the primary one, I would think, because, you know, medically, I mean, there have been so many toxicity, mutagenicity studies that have shown, you know, that you can throw 3,000 milligrams a day uh, at the human body. And it can, you worry about lipid-soluble nutrients with the liver liver enzymes don't change um you know the saturation if the body is saturated it gets rid of the nutrients it, it's there's really cool transport systems that help with that so medically virtually no risk and that's i mean i've dug deep into this i know professor nolan has as well there's just adverse events i've measured thousands of individuals you know i know john has as well in his studies I've never reported an adverse event in a study. No, uh, um, I mean, that's I've, I've done a scan of the literature as well. And one of the things I, I wonder, again, not knowing uh, all of the, you know, excretionary or excre excretory mechanisms, but one of the things I thought about is, well, is it, are there oxalates? Would we worry about like patients that would have kidney stones or any of those right. sorts of things? But that's not even the same pathway as... No, it's not. And you would get that from leafy greens right. if you were to eat the actual that's right. greens. That's but right. yeah, Not yeah, but in the carotenoid yeah. itself. Not in the purified carotenoids. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah so, so that was the one thing I was thinking about too is like, okay, well, maybe we already are high and we're trying to excrete these and then they get bogged down in the plumbing. Right. Yeah, um, it's a good thought, but no, yeah. it, that's not the case. Mm -hmm. yeah. The only other... Uh, 
I mean, if we look at Arids again, to go back to the Arids, they mm. made a, a very careful decision to remove beta carotene once mm -hmm. again because of the significantly high risk of uh, lung cancer and cigarette smokers. Right. So that's the, you know, the beta carotene is important. In some instances, we need to obtain it from our diet and so on. Um, but in terms of targeting the macula to deal with this specific condition, we know how to do it. Yeah. And most nutrients, we need, you know, enough, but not too much. You know, you talk about, well, like zinc, for instance. Right. I mean, that's, it's a little bit horrifying how much is in the ARIDS2 formulations, yeah. 80 milligrams. Yeah. We don't, that's a topic for another day, but, yeah. um, you know, we need about 10 or 11 milligrams a day and then really not much more. And we don't, you know, the FDA set the upper tolerable limit at 40 milligrams a day yeah. and yet we've got 80 yeah, and that's yeah, in the most you know most widely used yes. oh it scares AMD, me so, yeah, yeah it really scares i mean it can yeah. be neurotoxic right yeah. so anyway yeah, when, when i won the crest program in 2011 one of the big claims i had in the grant was that we had identified a deficiency in, in specific nutrients that needed to be addressed because of nutrition and evolution because of the basic fact that our kids are not consuming enough during their life even even homes that are fortunate and have access to good foods, we're 20 times away from where we need to be. Yeah. And that's why I'm asking, John, are you saying that you think everyone should be on this supplement? Yes, I am. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to be respectful of your time. Tell me, how how do I get a hold of this uh, life meter and, um, and any other parting thoughts? <laughs> Nobody here knows how well, to well, yeah. <laughs> We're the scientists. So, you know, so. <laughs> you know, Health is, is selling the life meter. MacuHealth is a supplement company. Okay, They are not an equipment company. This is not their science. This is a science that's been, been developed by a very, very smart scientist. Um, and there are many studies about this, this technology that, that proves it. So the, the sales team for MacuHealth will have the life meter. They're going to be able to demonstrate it. Uh, they're going to be able to give you the information about it as a practitioner. And I think the key is to, to actually try to see it and, and to, to test yourself, test your staff. That's been mm -hmm. the real interesting thing. Doctors sometimes supplement themselves and they find they're doing pretty well. And then they test their staff and their staff's at 200, 210. But the, you can get this through Macu Health and their sales reps. It's a very sophisticated kit. You know, it's, it's a spectrophotometer, essentially. It's equivalent to what we have mm. in the best lab in the world. But the, the magic here is it's been able to be, you know, made in, into a size and available to what will work in the clinic. And that's what's unique about this. Yeah. That's right. And it's not tied to any supplement. Yeah. You, know, you use it how you want to use it if you buy it. Yeah, I think that's great. So, John, Harvey, Jim, Thanks again so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Thanks, for Thanks for having us. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks, guys. Welcome.